That's page 1130 in the Brown Pew Bible and page 825 in the Blue Pew Bible. I apologize when I've been giving references to the Pew Bibles. I completely forgot that they're different colors and different pages. So some of you may have meant to turn to Galatians and ended up in 1 Timothy, so I apologize for that. Can read verses 8 to 31. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves by those, or to those, who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, or as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where, then, is your blessing of me now? I can testify that, if you could have done so, you'd have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us, so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The woman represents two covenants. One covenant is Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now, you brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. The slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance of the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Let's pray together and ask the Holy Spirit to give us the understanding and the grace study his word this morning. Let's pray. Our great God, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that in this section of Galatians, you continue to speak to us. 
So, oh, may our ears hear. May we be doers of your word, empowered by your spirit. So teach us mightily now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, over the past year and a half, I've had the chance to attend some pastor's conferences with lots of other men from Canada and the States, and in some cases, even the UK. These have been a great blessing to myself and for all the other pastors who were there, and I'm thankful for the church to allow me to go to things like these. But it seems that at these conferences, one of the repeated conversations that continues to arise has to do with the issue of preaching. In Canada, especially a nation struggling with biblical illiteracy, there is a desperate need for faithful biblical preaching. And so, with that in mind, reflecting upon the pastor's call to preach the word in and out of season, one of the questions that came forth was, what do biblical sermons look like? Or better yet, what essentials must they include? To help us address that question, we had to be reminded of the fact that every single time the church gathers on a Sunday morning, there are two groups of people that are present. There is the church of Jesus Christ that has been saved, and then there are those who are not yet saved, and simply are churchgoers. And every time the church gathers, that's the case. The scriptures speak of that. We'd be naive not to think that. And so in light of that, then, a biblical sermon should not only be the teaching of God's word, to teach and build up those who are the church, they may taste and walk in the life that God has for them through Christ, but also be evangelizing those who are not yet believing in Christ. They may hear the power of the gospel and believe. And so with that being said, we were also reminded that Scripture, since it points to Christ every single part, Both of these elements should be in every sermon, in every scriptural text. You should be able to do this because all the scriptures point to Christ and the gospel. Now that being said, we have to acknowledge the fact that there are texts in the scripture which may not show the gospel as vividly as others. And then there are those that undeniably the gospel of Christ is before us and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And Galatians has been the latter. Every single page, every single chapter, we have seen the beauty of the gospel of Christ displayed before us. We can't ignore it, confronting us time and time again. And with that letter, continuing to do the two things that are supposed to be part of biblical messages. Teaching the church, building them up, but also confronting the churchgoers who have been sitting in the pews for years, but have never trusted in the gospel. And so as we continue Galatians this morning, I once again pray that the Spirit will, by his word, build up and teach the church. And for those of you who are not saved. That it may be a day of salvation. That your church going will not end in vain. You may feel comfortable in the pews, but you shouldn't be. 
Because if you take your last breath, it will not be God's grace and God's salvation that you see. If you've been listening to Galatians, it will be the wrath and the eternal condemnation that God pours upon sinners. So, once again, may the Spirit give us ears to hear. And so we're continuing in chapter 4. Chapters 3 and 4 we've been looking at have been a deep well that we've been drinking from, outlining the gospel truths, as it not only has reminded us that through Christ and the cross alone can sinners be saved, reminding us of God's plan all along and how the Old Testament has always pointed to the cross. It's reminded us last week, as we've seen, of who believers have become in light of the cross and continuing to explain why the false teachers of Galatia that are proclaiming that you must adhere to the law of Moses to be saved, why that teaching should wholeheartedly be rejected, and why any teaching that says you have to do something in order to be saved should be wholeheartedly rejected, rather than trusting in the cross of Christ. And so as we're continuing in this section this morning, there are three gospel truths that Paul is outlining for us. And we're going to actually start with the end of the chapter. Now, there are probably lots of people here this morning who wish I started with the end more often and then left it at that. But we're actually going to begin with the end because, no doubt, it is one of the most difficult, strange, and interesting sections in Paul's letter to the Galatians. And so we're going to unpack it briefly this morning to help us understand what it is that Paul is trying to communicate to us. Well, if we keep in mind that in this section, Paul has been outlining for the Galatians and for us how God's plan of salvation always pointed to the cross and how the Old Testament always pointed to the cross, here again, he is doing this. But he's doing it in a new way. See, he's appealing to Abraham, the very one the gospel was first announced to. We've already seen that in chapter 3, helping us understand the Old Testament. But here he's saying, even through the birth of Isaac, the birth of the son that Abraham would have, from which the nation of Israel would come, and then ultimately Christ, the Savior, would come. Even in the birth of the child that brings that all about, that itself was a foreshadowing of the saving work of the gospel. But how? How? We could spend a whole message on this alone, but I'm going to highlight the main thing that we need to understand here. When it came to Abraham having a child with Sarah, Genesis is very clear, and Hebrews itself reminds us, that Sarah's womb was as good as dead. Barren. And God said, you're going to have a son. 
And I'm going to make him a great nation. And from that nation, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, referring to Christ. And so Abraham and Sarah heard that news and said, that sounds good. Yeah, we're going to, that, that makes sense. Yeah? No. Sarah laughs. Abraham thinks, well, barren womb here, that's clearly not going to work. So the only way God's promise is really going to come about is if Hagar, and Sarah says, Hagar, go to the slave. Her, her womb's not barren. She, she can be part of bringing about this child. That must be what God is talking about because, after all, her womb's not barren. And so, Abraham has relations with Hagar, and they have a child. But is that the child that was crossed? The one to who Israel would come and Christ would come? No. Oh, it wasn't. Now, the child that was promised that would bring forth the nation of Israel and bring forth Christ would come through Sarah. And so, Abraham and Sarah had to learn that when it came to God producing that life and bringing about that promise within Sarah, they had no natural ability to contribute to it at all. They had to wholeheartedly trust in God to produce that life because there was no way they could do it. They tried the natural ability and, and Hagar bringing her own abilities into the equation, but that wasn't how it works. So then, how does that foreshadow the gospel? Well, Paul wants us to understand that those who try by their own abilities in some sense whether it's church going, whether it's giving money in the offering plate, whether it's going and helping at the fountain, or whatever it may be. If you are trying in some sense to, to contribute or bring about the new life, salvation, the new birth, then you are acting just as foolishly as Hagar did, thinking that you can bring it about. The truth of the gospel is that sinners are barren, just like Sarah. There is nothing we can do to produce that new life. There is not one song we can sing, not one good deed that could possibly bring that about. And Paul's been saying this. We're dead to sin. There's nothing we can do. The power of the gospel is when you come to the cross of Christ as a barren sinner and not bring any of your own abilities into the equation, but just wholeheartedly trust in the work of Christ on the cross. And as you do that, just as Sarah trusted in God to bring about Isaac and had to learn that, so then the new life, salvation Christ produces within us. Paul's going around saying, hey, you people who are going around trying to earn your own salvation in some way or, or try to do part of the work, meeting God halfway, have you not heard the story of Hagar? How the journey even began is not through your own abilities and your own efforts and your own talents. 
Now, keep in mind, Paul here is referring to these false teachers who are saying all these things about the law of Moses, and he's calling them like Hagar. That's going to make a Jew pretty mad. Wait a minute, you're saying that we're not acting like Sarah, the one from whom Israel came? You're saying we're acting like that foolish slave Hagar? Do we have any Hagar's here this morning? I've heard of the cross of Christ. I know Christ died for me, but, but I've got to be able to do something here. I've got to contribute in some way. Paul's saying, no. The beauty of the gospel is that we come with nothing. Nothing to offer. Even the best deeds, our, our best dressed up work for Christ, Isaiah says, is filthy rags in the sight of God. So if you are trusting in your own ability, in your own ways, in your own intellect, the scripture from the very beginning from which Israel comes rebukes them. Oh, the gospel is God's grace to barren sinners who cannot produce life within them, but by the power of Christ, though we were dead in sin, God made us alive in Christ. And that's the hope that we have. Amen? Wonderful, wonderful truth. So therefore, we never boast about it. We can never go and say, ah, yes, yes, it makes sense that God saved me. It doesn't make sense that God saved us. It's the beauty of him saving those who are not worthy of it and of his grace and of his love, producing that life that we can never produce within us, wholeheartedly trusting in the cross. And so he is worthy of the praise. He is worthy of all the honor and glory. That's the first thing ultimately from this section that we need to remember. It's always been about God giving life to the barren, wholeheartedly trusting in him. And anyone trying to do something different is not walking according to God's plan and promise. The second thing we see here in this passage, and we go back up to the opening verses in verse 8. Paul celebrating this gospel truth reminds us just what it looked like and who we are when we were in that barren state, unable to help ourselves and produce that life. And he goes on to remind the Galatians that through the gospel, they, they did not become worshipers. Before the gospel, they were worshiping. And he says they are worshiping God's who were not God. And of course, a reminder that these Galatians, no doubt Gentiles, who would have worshipped many pagan gods in a variety of ways, some too disgusting to mention. And Paul says, you didn't just worship them, you were slaves to them. They were idols. 
Now, of course, we know the scriptures, the situation with the Galatians is not anything unique. This is the reality of sin. That though we were created to be in relationship with God and to worship Him and to enjoy Him and delight in Him forever, to, to have Him as our highest source of pleasure and joy and purpose and, and meaning is all found from Him. Ultimately, sin was that we rejected God who was worthy of that and we began to worship other gods. Sinful nature is not that we failed to worship, but is that the object of our worship has changed. And so now sinful humanity begins to give what God is worthy of and, and attribute it to many other things. And so the, the Galatians had their gods, and if we remind ourselves this morning, we too rejected God and bowed down to other things. Things for meaning and purpose and identity and life, whether it be money, whether it be family, whether it be our jobs, whether it be sex or drugs or alcohol or whatever it may be, there are gods that we bowed down to that became the ultimate thing that we treasured and where we found our identity and our purpose. That was part of our barren state. That was part of our sinful nature. That's true of every single one of us. But notice here, Paul is not reminding them of their enslavement to false gods and to the rejection of God and and the, the grossness of that. He's not doing that to bring about a condemnation for the past. He's not doing it to make you feel guilty, and that's not why we're reminding ourselves this morning of it, so that we're just overwhelmed with guilt because of everything that we've done in the past. No, the scripture is clear. We've sung it this morning in Christ alone. There's no guilt in life. It's not God's intention for the church to live in condemnation. So Paul's not doing that here. Rather, he's reminding us what has taken place in light of the cross. This is who you were, Galatians. This is who you were, Elvin Street Baptist, for those who have trusted in Christ. Verse 9, but. There Paul says, but we pay very close attention to what then follows. But now you know God and are known by God. See, the beauty of the gospel through Christ, through barren sinners coming and trusting wholeheartedly in the work of the cross and the cross alone, God rescues you from that hopeless enslavement where you're bowing down to all these things and you come back to the God that you were created to worship. You come back to see the one who is holy and worthy and majestic and the creator and the one true God who is everlasting. And instead of bowing down to all these foolish things, instead of money, instead of sex, instead of family, instead of culture, whatever may be power, you look at God and say, you are the one who is worthy of praise and honor and glory. You are the one who is holy. You are the one where I find my identity. You are the highest affection in my life. You, you, and only you. And that is a work which only God can do. Not us. 
We were enslaved to it. And so, I hope we're reminded this morning that the songs that we're singing are not just melodies. This is a restored worship and just part of it where the Son of the living God has set us free to become the worshipers we were created to be. As everyone in town is going around bowing down to their gods, whether it be Sunday poker club. I don't even know that exists. I'm just making things up here. Maybe it does. As they're going around chasing all their gods, we, the church, are gathering to worship the one true living God. We know Him. And the biblical word for know here is not just that we have an intellectual concept of who He is. No, we know We have an intimate relationship with him. Why? Because as we've seen in Galatians, we have a union with Christ. His spirit is with us. Never to leave us or forsake us. As we worship this morning, Christ is in our midst with us. We know him. This is amazing. But, despite the beauty What Christ has done for us. Paul wants us to be reminded about something here. Very important truth the church we cannot forget. When we are saved, barren sinners coming to the cross of Christ, wholeheartedly trusting Him, we are rescued from that enslavement to idolatry. The consequences of everlasting judgment are no longer held against us. But it doesn't mean that we worship perfectly right away. Scriptures teach us the doctrine of glorification is that we will fully be perfect when Christ returns. So we've been rescued. We've been set free. We no longer experience the consequences. But the scriptures teach us that because of the sinful nature that God is still working on by His Spirit within us, there are times where even though we're no longer enslaved to those things, we can find ourselves running back to them. So even though I'm set free from being enslaved to money as my God, or whatever it may be, I can still go back and treasure it in an inappropriate way. That's why John, in his first epistle, ends with the important command, not just a, a suggestion. My dear children, keep away from idols. And so, Paul is saying to Galatians, oh, this is who you've become. You've been set free from idolatry. But don't you know that what you're doing right now is returning? You're engaging in idolatry. Now, what did they do before? As Gentiles, they would have done a lot of disgusting things. You understand the Gentile pagan world at that time. But notice what he says here is the form of their idolatry. You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. What's that a reference to? The law.
Us Gentile ears don't hear the significance of this right away, but if you were Jewish, you would be foaming at the mouth right now. Did Paul just say that keeping the holy law of God is idolatry? The very thing that condemns and prohibits idolatry. Yes. Yes, he just said that. He said, you're going and trusting in the law and you're going around saying, this is what God desires, this is the word of God, but you are failing to realize you are resorting and turning back to the very life of idolatry that Christ rescued you from. But how is that the case? Why is it idolatry? Because they are treating the law in the way it was never supposed to be treated. They're trusting in it for salvation. When they should be wholeheartedly trusting in Christ. And so what's the point that we get here, church? Whether it's the law, whether it's going to church, whether it's good deeds, whether it's saying your prayers at night. The very moment the church begins to deny the fact that we have been saved simply by the cross and the cross of Christ alone. And we begin to build up things like, well, I need, I need to make sure I'm doing devotions for God to love me and for me to be saved. The moment you begin to add that stuff, guess what you are doing? You're engaging in idolatry. Why? Because you are giving credit to something for participating in your salvation that Christ alone deserves. Ever thought about that way? The scriptures teach us that way. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, period. It's not through my performance. It's not through my efforts. Otherwise, I'm Hagar. And so we need to be praying against, as even Peter did back in chapter 2, beginning to, to raise up conditions. Well, the cross plus devotions, the cross plus prayer. These are all things that flow out of the life of being saved, but they're not the reason you are saved. We need to pray against that because the moment we begin to attribute anything to saving us, we're giving that glory which Christ alone is only worthy of. And we're going back to the very kind of life which Christ came to rescue us from. So may our song as we sing, on Christ's solid rock I stand, may that be true. So whether we're coming in here this morning in our devotional life this week with just the absolute pits, or whether you realize that you weren't so loving to your neighbor this week, you come in here, There is a freedom and there is a joy in knowing that it's not based on what I've done. It's based on what Christ has done for me. Period. And may he, Christ alone, receive all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise for he alone has died.
So it was a lesson on worship. There's one other thing here, and it is in the middle of both of these gospel truths, which act as a frame to this section. And we've seen here two strong teaching moments about the gospel. And now we see in, in the middle section, verses 12 to 20, Paul take a, a different tactic, and not because he's not teaching us, but he's just moving to a different way of writing and, and speaking to the Galatians. And so he goes from the strong declaration, proclamation of their behavior, now he begins to plead with them emotionally. Reminding them of his experience with them. And so what do we learn from this? Well, if we remember in Galatians, part of their issue is not only have they come to promote and teach a different gospel, they are beginning to question whether Paul is actually a biblical teacher or not. So here, even in this emotional section, we see Paul reminding them of the fact that he is a biblical teacher. They knew he was, that this is the truth. And, And through this a mode of plea, we see ultimately described for us the very heart of Paul's teaching with the Galatians and a reminder of what biblical teaching looks like. As I said at the beginning of the message this morning, one of the desperate needs in this nation is for the raising up of teachers who will teach the way the Bible calls them to teach. So what does biblical teaching look like? And this is an important reminder for us, whether we are pastors or we are Sunday school teachers or we are women ministry leaders or Bible study leaders. This is an important reminder. What does biblical teaching look like that Paul has been displaying here? Well, the first thing, and I'm going to give you a few points as we close, but an important reminder that we may pray that this is the only kind of teaching that takes place here. Is biblical teachers, first and foremost, trust in the power of the Spirit for the fruit? It's not about their own ability, their own state, their own talents. Notice the Apostle Paul. Luke doesn't give us to this give this to us in Acts, but we see Paul giving it to us in Galatians. When he went there, he wasn't well. The strong Pharisee, this great teacher, he goes there and he describes himself as being weak, as being sick, as being someone who could possibly be treated with contempt or scorn because he himself was not in a great condition. But yet... It wasn't about whether Paul felt well. It wasn't about whether or not Paul looked good to those he was ministering to. It was about the faithful proclamation of God's word and God's spirit working to bring about the fruit. Do you feel this morning that you have to be a certain state of, of health? Or you have to feel like 
You need to feel like you've got things together or or look good or, or have the right kind of intellect or speech to be used by God to proclaim the gospel. Because if we think that, we've, we've, we've ruled out number one rule. It's not about us. It's about the Spirit of God working through us, convicting. I come to you this morning with 16 pages of words that are purely words unless the Spirit of God convicts and changes. And so I don't come trusting my own ability. My vocabulary stinks. I don't have many great words to use, and to be quite frank, as I've learned these pastoral conferences, my illustrations are lacking as well. I'm sorry, folks, but I take great comfort in knowing that as the word is preached week after week after week, the Spirit of God is at work, changing and opening hearts and changing minds so that you leave transformed, not because of me, but because the Spirit of God is at work. So you don't go home and say, boy, Pastor Eric. No, you say Spirit of God. Because he's the one who's working. And Paul's saying, you could have treated me with contempt and scorn and tossed me aside. But oh, God. The work of God. So I encourage you this morning. You don't have to have a seminary degree. You don't have to have the right words to say. You can stumble over your words. I do it all the time. You know that. But I can't speak. Anybody else ever said that before? Who said that this? Moses, you can't speak. Really? Who made the mouth? But what if I get what if I get trapped in one of those big arguments and they, and they come at me with all this philosophical stuff? Who is able to make the, the wisdom of the age look foolish in a moment? So church, it's a call to myself, it's a call to us. When it comes to biblical teaching, we do not base it on our appearance or our own efforts, but on the grace and the work of the Spirit of God. You know, I heard somebody say once, and you know, the pastor, I can't believe you wore blue jeans up there at a church service once. Because clearly, that's not going to make people want to listen to him. Blue jeans, shorts, suit flip-flops, whatever it may be. He goes up there and speaks the word of God. The spirit of God's going to work. We put our confidence in the saving work of the spirit. The next thing we see is that we are called to teach the truth. Even when people don't like it. Paul says, here I become an enemy. By telling you the truth. We're called to teach the truth. What's the truth? The word of God. Not just a particular passage, the ones that we relate to or have in our coffee mugs at home or or find ourselves in the daily bread in the morning, whatever it may be. We're called to teach the counsel of God. The word of God. Even when people don't like it. I've learned very early on in internships and there many teachers, even in Sunday school and whatever it may be, who have noticed, boy, teaching the truth of God sometimes can lead to conflicts. 
people get upset and they don't want to hear what's been said. I know lots of people who say they would prefer not to teach on certain books or teach on certain subjects because of the consequences it could bring. But here's the truth. If you want to teach the way the Bible calls us to teach, you have no choice but to teach the whole counsel of God. And people are going to be upset. But Paul gives us an important reminder here. But what we remember when people are upset. He says, you did no wrong to me. What you're reminding us of, whether it be Sunday school or Bible study or, or evangelism or whatever form of teaching it may be that God brings us into, what's, what's reminding When people reject the message, they're not rejecting you. They're not rejecting the messenger. Ultimately, when people wrestle with God's word and reject God's word, who is it they're rejecting? God. And so that's part of the war, and that's part of the task. People wrestle with the word of God, and we get to be the messengers who stand in the middle. But even if they come at you, remember, it's ultimately God in which they are wrestling with. So teaching the truth even when they don't like it. If you want to pray for biblical teachers, biblical teaching to take place, whether it be Sunday school or women's ministry or or preaching from the pulpit, you know one thing you can pray for? Pray that people have a fear of God over a fear of people. Because if you have a fear of people, It would be very difficult preaching the truth, even when it's not wanting to be heard. The next thing we see a part of biblical teaching is Paul here doesn't just trust in the power of the Spirit, doesn't just teach them the truth, despite the fact that he's become an enemy to them, but part of biblical teaching is to expose false teaching. Galatians, what has he been doing? Expounding and arguing and showing why there is false teaching. And church, if we think that every single thing we hear about God in the media or on TV or even in this community is in line with what God's Word says, we are naive. And we've forgotten that even from the very moment this letter has began, Paul has spoken of the fact that there will be false teaching. And so biblical teachers need to be correcting and addressing the false teaching. Calling it out from the pulpit. Calling it out in the Sunday school rooms. Calling it out in the Bible studies. I've had someone, many people say before, well... How, how do you be a biblical teacher in a day where you can get your pants suit up? You speak up against same-sex marriage or abortion, whatever it may be. Well, let me ask you a question. What's worse? To have the pants suit off you, your marriage license stripped, people upset at you, and maybe even legal issues, 
for speaking the truth or compromising and answering to God for that compromise. We need to speak out against false teaching. The Sunday school teacher needs to tell that young girl, those young boys in the Sunday school room, the definition of marriage when it's not there properly. So you need to pray for that boldness. Because you let false teaching breed within a congregation. And it creates havoc. So we trust in the power of the Spirit. We teach the Word even when it's not wanting to be heard. We expose false teaching. It sounds fun. Isn't teaching fun? But what's the ultimate goal? Why do we do it all? Why do, we, why do we pray for biblical teaching to continue to arise within this church? So that we can have tons of people in the pews and people think, boy, something's really happening at Elgin Street Baptist. Do we do it so that we can be one of the best Sunday school teachers ever to come around or one of the best pastors ever to come around? Is that the goal? No. Paul says, I labor that Christ may be formed in you. So you face the hardship. You face the upset people who get mad when the truth is preached. You face the people who don't want to hear about false teaching or think that maybe there is behavior that's going on in the church that's not in line with the word of God. You do it all. Why? So that they may be transformed into the image of Christ and taste the gospel. That's what I pray every week for you, that you hear this. It's not a talk on a Sunday morning. It's not a motivational speech. But so the Spirit of God convicts all of us so that we leave this place transformed more and more reflecting the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the goal. People get upset. False teaching exposed. It's all part of it. But it's so people become holy. I mean, it's going to be challenging. Birth, Christ, being born in you, growing in you, changing you. That's change. That can be painful at times. But we labor. This is the teaching. This is what is needed in our nation. We pray for that. I pray that's the teaching that takes place within our church. I pray that down the road, as long as the Lord keeps this particular congregation open, that this will be the teaching that He provides. The people may be changed. Through biblical, faithful preaching, teaching.
so we pray for this. So three things again to take to heart when we pray for the Spirit to bring home to us. It's the gospel. It's about God's grace to the barren sinners who cannot save themselves but wholeheartedly trust in the cross of Christ. And we continue to affirm justification by faith in the cross of Christ alone because if we don't, we go back to idolatrous behavior. And thirdly, we pray for this kind of teaching, this faithful gospel preaching that we see in Paul and that we so desperately need. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you humbled by your word, humbled by the gospel. And I pray again this morning, Father, for those who have yet to respond to the gospel. For those who, in some way, in some manner, have sought to try to prove themselves or show themselves acceptable and worthy of it. And I pray, Lord, that like barren sinners, they come to the cross wholeheartedly trusting in the work. Christ on the cross. Convict and save this morning, I pray. Father, for those of us who are set free, we pray and we are so thankful that you have allowed us to be set free from idolatry and to worship you. And we give our lives to you as living sacrifices in view of the mercy you've shown to us. But Lord, keep us on guard against the idolatry that we can continue to struggle with. And one of those, Lord, is to trust in things that we say can save us. And we rob you, we strip you of the glory that Christ alone is due. So Lord, help us treasure in the cross, the cross alone for salvation. Lord, it's a beautiful gospel, and Lord, we pray that you would raise up biblical teachers who would continue to preach the truth. Within our nation, where biblical literacy is high, where there is the challenge of the gospel, would you raise up teachers who would teach in the power of the Spirit, who would teach the whole counsel of God that the church may not be starving, who would expose false teaching for the sake of the health of the church and ultimately labor and labor despite the challenges, despite the obstacles that can come, that they may be formed and transformed into the image of Christ. For this we pray, may this be the result of this particular message we pray in Christ's name. Amen.